so this is a very famous passage in the book of Exodus. Exodus 33. Remember what uh, uh, Amanda just read? Moses declares, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That's, that's an insane prayer conversation that he is having with God, which can be defined as prayer. And uh, we have a ton to learn from this, an absolute ton to learn from this. And, and probably the, the first thing that we need to learn from it is what, what is glory? What is glory? And so it's one of those church words, right? It's one of those things that uh, we just kind of assume that we all know and understand. It's like, oh, yeah, the glory of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. You know, uh, there's all these things that uh, we sense that we probably know, but we're like, what? Do, do we have a good grip on it? Do we have a good definition of it? And I think it, uh, it becomes confusing, right, with our popular culture. Uh, you probably have seen that basketball mo- movie called Glory Road. And a lot of times, glory is just kind of wrapped up into excellence, right? Wrapped up into accomplishing one thing or another or a certain sporting event. So, you know, the glory of Rudy as he was carried off the football field back in the 70s or 60s. Or the glory of Tom Brady's seven Super Bowls or whatever. And so we kind of get it mixed up with athletics a little bit, I think, in our, in our vernacular here in the West. Popular culture has a tendency to do that with different words of the Bible that just kind of confuse us a little bit. But before we answer the question, glory, which we absolutely see a ton of in this, let me give some of the background and some of the context of what we are seeing here. God has decided after his salvation of the people through saving them from the the people of Egypt and bringing them uh, to a place where he revealed himself to them and gave them the law, he decided to tabernacle with us, to tabernacle with the people of God. You're saying, Cody, you went from one uh, church word to another church word, and we're digging deeper and deeper into the hole. What does it mean to, to, for God to tabernacle with us? It means that he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent. He, he wants to dwell with us. God wants to dwell with his people, and that's what it means for him to tabernacle amongst us. And so what we see in the book of Exodus, if you follow along in our, our church reading plan that we post every single week, every single Monday in our, um, in our social media platforms, you'll, you probably have read all the way through uh, the book of Exodus. You can always catch up at this point. But uh, you probably read chapter after chapter after chapter, and the word tabernacle came up over and over and over again, and it's just a little tent. It's a tent that had the dwelling place of the Lord. And if you're anything like me, whenever sections of the Bible come up like this, we have this tendency to do what? Just kind of gloss over. I don't think I actually need this part. I don't really need to know uh, how many... Uh, how many inches the curtain needs to be and how, how fine twined linen needs to be here and ribbons of blue and ribbons of uh, topaz and all this stuff. And whenever you're reading this section of the Bible, you're just like, uh, when are we going to get back to the cool parts of God, like splitting Red Seas and all that? And if you're reading that way, you, you're, you're reading and you're, you're actually doing a grave mistake. You're doing a grave mistake because remember this section of uh, 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 our sermon series is called The Gospel According to Exodus. And Exodus communicates to us, it begins with 
uh, the people of God being in slavery, and it ends, it ends with worship. And what we see in the second half of the book of Exodus is God is trying to explain to his people how the tabernacle needs to be set up and how worship needs to be displayed. He's trying to help us understand that, hey, I'm utterly different than you. Uh, There's a distinction between me and you, and if you want to operate, you want to operate in this system, in this mode, you need to understand what it means to, to worship and to love and to enjoy me because I am your holy God. I'm your holy God. And that's how you need to read the latter part of the book of Exodus in all the law. And he's like, oh, it's just law. I can skip over that. Jesus fulfilled that. No, dig into it because it's trying to help you, you see the holiness of our God. It's trying to help you understand just how great our God actually is. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of Exodus. It's the beauty of Exodus. So he wants to tabernacle with us. He wants to tabernacle. He wants to dwell with us. And then Exodus 29, let me, I'm still giving context. Verse 45, it says this. It's a good summary of what I'm talking about. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might tabernacle among them, that I might dwell with them. I am the Lord, their God. God is saying, I'm doing all of this. I'm helping you see all of this so that you can worship me in truth. That you're, I'm not just leaving you by yourself to just say, oh, just do whatever you want with this holy God. No. You can't do whatever you want with this holy God. And God is very clearly communicating, this is what it means to draw near to me. This is what it means to draw near to me. And I said this about probably two weeks ago, but really, what's the purpose of the law? The primary purpose of the law is this, to reveal the things that God loves and the things that God hates. To reveal those things. And I think within our modern culture, we've, we've swung too far on, on the pendulum of kind of mutant grace over here because I, I noticed, especially with my generation who might have been uh, raised by um, potential uh, evangelicalism that's kind of like modern-day Phariseeism that has a certain set of codes that's kind of extra-biblical, and those really are the markers of what define a Christian. And so my generation has kind of swung to the other side of it and just said, throw all religiosity out the door, and it's just grace. Well, that's not actually true, and that's not what we see here in the book of Exodus. There is a holy God. And his holiness demands a certain way that we need to interact with him. And what the book of Exodus, the latter part, is trying to show us, and what we're going to see about the glory of God, is the glory of God is kind of revealed, revealed in how we try to understand what we need to do in participating in an intimate relationship with this God, with this God, okay? And so, what we see here, what we see here is... Uh, that's kind of the purpose of the law. And right before this section is the whole golden calf incident. You remember that? The golden calf incident. So they've come together. They've received the Ten Commandments. Moses is still at the top of the mountain receiving the law. And in chapter 32, verse 8, it says, 
uh, when the people have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. This is God saying, uh, hey, you got to go back down there because everything is ruined. They're going crazy down there. They've decided to, uh, to establish their own worship rituals. And he's saying, I'm holy. They can't do that. I told them what to do. I told them to have no other gods before me, and to make no graven images of me. And, and right out of the gate, what do, what do they do? They say, we don't know where Moses is, and so let's just worship. Uh, let's, let's bring all the gold up here. Let's throw it in the fire. And then Aaron says, out came this calf, and we just worshiped it, and we called it the Lord. They called it Yahweh. They, they, which, this is interesting. So there's a side of it that you're just like, well, they were trying to worship God, and they're calling them by the same name. And then there's another side of it, but they broke the first two commandments. And you know how God responds to this in our section of Scripture? This is what I want you to see. Is God responds to this and basically says, you know what, I'm done. I'm done with these people. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because if you've been with us for a while, and you've been with uh, uh, all, all, our entire series of Exodus, you know what God has been saying? Whenever they act a fool, he just says, give them grace. Go meet their needs, Moses. Be kind and gentle with them. I am kind and gentle. And then remember uh, the rock incident? He stood, God stood before them on the rock, and he says, Moses, take your staff and strike the rock. That's where God was. The rod of God's judgment struck, struck him, struck him. And so we see grace after grace after grace after grace, and then we get to this section, and God says, I'm done. No more. I'm done with these people. Absolutely. And you see what God is trying to do here, and you can be like, oh, is this God being, is this God waking up on the wrong side of the bed? Is he being a little grumpy here? Is this what, what's going on? Has he finally had it? Is that part of his character? You can get to a part where he finally has it? No. No. And God is using this as a metaphor to try to teach the mediator, which is Moses, the go-between between between, uh, the people of God and God himself to remember his promises. To remember his promises. And in Exodus 33, it says that God spoke to Moses as one speaks to a friend. Moses was a friend of God. And friends remember the promises that they make between each other. So God was using this harsh language to say, I'm done, to bring to memory all the promises that he has given to his people so that Moses could declare to the people the promises of God and teach his own heart that the promises of God are irrevocable, are absolutely irrevocable. But this is hard. This is a hard concept to to process But let's think of it this way. Let's think of it this way. Um, God is saying, I'm done here. And uh, what happens in intimate relationships in marriages? In marriages, we need to understand, if you want an intimate relationship in a marriage, you uh, you learn these things over time. Uh, You have a list of things that your spouse loves and how they receive love and enjoy love. And then there's a list of spouse... Uh, things that your spouse, let's put them on the oh, no, no list. You don't ever do these things. And if you want an intimate relationship between you and your spouse, you will try to do as many things that they, 
love to do as often as possible, and you never do the things that you don't, that they don't love that you do. And it'd be great. I'm doing a, a marriage ceremony next month, and it would be great um, if, uh, as they were exchanging vows, they also handed each other a list of of those things, right? Uh, these are the things you should never do, and these are the things you should do in order for me to receive love. But, but anyways, you know what God is doing here because he's so different than us? In the Ten Commandments, he kind of gives the people of God the list. Right? That's what he's doing. Hey, here's the list of the oh, no, no's. Don't murder people. Don't make any graven images. And here's the things that I love. Keep my, keep my name holy. Keep my name holy in your midst. Um, uh, be, uh, keep, the, keep the Sabbath. Uh, love people as yourself. Don't murder them. Honor your father and mother. Do these things. So he's given them the list of the things that uh, they should do and not do. And they just immediately broke it right out of the gate as soon as they get the, the commandments. I mean, just absolute utter fail. And so God says, you know what, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. I'm done. And God does something pretty interesting at the beginning of this section. In Exodus 33, we start in 15, but if you go all the way back to, to um, verse 1 of this chapter, the Lord speaks to Moses after he says he's completely done after the golden calf incident. And you know what he says? Follow along with me. Oh, um, if you have your Bibles open, it says this. Depart. The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites and all those guys. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's grace. Right? Grace. And in fact, how does the world see this? Think about the the order that God just established here. He, He just established, I will be your God, and I will give you everything that your heart desires. I will give you a land when you were formerly slaves. I will... uh, Move in power amongst you. I will drive out the people of the land before you. I will give you a land that's beautiful and bountiful. I will let you prosper and grow in health because it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which just is, sounds sticky, you know. It sounds like uh, Honey Nut Cheerios or something like that, you know. Like, it, it, I don't know. But he said, this is the type of land that I'm giving you. And so he, and then he says, but my presence isn't going to be with you. If the world hears this, doesn't the world want a religion like this? God, leave me alone. I don't want to deal with your presence and like work your holiness deep inside me or, or even process all that emotionally of what that means of how utterly different than you are, uh, you are than me. But, but allow me to prosper. Give me wealth. Give me power. Give me security. Give me all of these things. And that's what he promises them at the beginning of Exodus 33. The world looks at this and says, wow, this is great. Power, wealth, prosperity, a nation. But how does Moses respond? Nope, not good enough. 
That isn't good enough. Even though it sounds like a pretty good offer, Moses is teaching us something in this section that we have to grasp as the people of God. Christian in this room, you have to grasp this as a person that is walking in faith with God. Or I, let me say this, if you, this is going to be a little bold, but if you haven't grasped this point that I'm about to share, then you might not be a Christian. You might not be a follower of Jesus. Because in this section, what he is saying is that all these things, the wealth, power, prosperity, security, comfort, health, all these things are producing within us a sense of profound identity. Profound identity, right? See, Cody, I'm not tracking. Well, yes, just think about it. Think about it. How many of our idols today in secular culture are surrounded by someone that is successful? Elon Musk, successful, richest man in the world. Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Steve jo- the late Steve Jobs. These are our idols in Western culture, right? Why? Because they had influence. They had influence. And, what, and what, is this, what is this saying? This is identity language. God is promising them an identity, an identity surrounded by all these things that I'm listing. And we in our Western culture, we look at these things and we say, yeah, those are attractive things to, to, to build our identity around. They really are. Attractive things. Wealth. So many of us build our identity on how much is in that bank account. How much is it? Or we build our identity on how little is in that bank account. We build our identity on our health. I'm a healthy person over here. I'm a cancer survivor over here. I'm not saying these are good or bad. I'm just saying this is part of our natural anthropology as people. You and I build our identity on all of these things that God promised the people. But he said, my presence isn't going to go with you. And the lesson here is what Moses is trying to teach us is that that is not a good enough identity. It's not good enough. Even if you promise all of these things in your presence won't go with me, that's not good enough. Because this is what Moses knew. Moses knew this, that our very identity, our very identity as followers of God, as followers of God, cannot just be wrapped up in seeing God as practical and useful to us. Taking notes, you should probably write that down. We oftentimes are duped into saying, I will follow God only if he is practical and useful for me. And Moses is saying, hey, your practicality here, that's not enough. That's not enough. And what am I saying here? I'm saying that power, wealth, prosperity, security, health, all of these things are a form of glory. That's why we center our lives around them. Listen, you and I cannot live without chasing some form of glory. We can't do it. We will, we will do it in some way. We will say, my, I know that I am someone. We will base our identity on how successful I am. I, you, you, you will base your identity on how comfortable can I be. When, when I know I have arrived, whenever I graduate, or if I uh, graduate with a 4.0 or whatever it, whatever it is, we will wrap our identity in one of these things. And we, what are we ultimately saying? We're saying 
that if I have that, then I'll finally know that I'm someone. You're chasing glory. You're chasing glory. And what Moses knows is that all of these glories will fade. All of them will fade. You say, no, Cody, you're wrong. I don't chase those things. You know, my identity isn't based on how healthy I am. My identity isn't based on how much money I have. My identity isn't based on uh, the next career ladder. You're wrong. You missed me. You missed me in that list. Okay, let me find you. Let me find you. Um, You might be a person that says, you know what, I don't need any of those things. I'm not materialistic or anything. All I need, I just need love. I just need love. I just need one person to say I'm okay and I am fine with that. I just need love. I just need my community. I just need my boo. I just need, I just need this person or that person to say that I'm significant. And listen, that's a form of glory too. That's a form of glory too. You saying, I'm okay if this person tells me I'm okay. See the identity language in that? See, my identity is wrapped up on what he or she says about me. Or this or that career status. Or accomplishing this or that goal. God offers that all to the people of Israel. And Moses says, nope. Not good enough. Not good enough. We cannot live without your glory. We can't live without your glory. I need you. You see how he said it? He says, what else makes us distinct amongst all the people of the earth? Is it not this, that you dwell in our midst? That you are with us? That the ultimate glory that we are created for is the presence of God? This is what we need. I don't, I, who cares? We don't need a land. We don't, we don't need um, honeycombs or whatever it is, the, the land flowing with milk and honey. We don't need those things. We need you. That's what Moses is saying. We need you. And look what God says. In verse 17, God says, okay. He says, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. How sweet is that? Think about it. It's sitting there. God of the universe spoke mountains, rivers, oceans, trees into existence with the words of his mouth. He says, I know your name. A speck of dirt on the earth that he created. Powerful. Powerful. And amazingly, what's crazy about this is Moses uh, is feeling pretty good. He's like, oh, you know my name. You know my name. And so uh, it's kind of like he, he, he just closed the deal. He just closed the cell. And he gets right back on the phone. And he's like, I'm going for another thing. And look how he doubles down. Please show me your glory. You should show me your glory, the glory that I'm looking for, the glory that I know that I am made for. Show me that. Show me that. That's what we see here. You know how God responds? He responds, nope. <laughs> Can't do that because you'll die. Uh, no one can behold my glory. No one can see me face to face and survive. Can't do it. Can't do it at all. And so, let's dive in. Let's dive in to try to understand what beholding God's glory is. And let me 
put it to you this way. There's a, a, a tons of ways that you can biblically define the word glory, but we don't have tons of time, and so let me explain it to you in this way. Early on, whenever you uh, were drawn to Christ, believer, look at me, believer in the room, look at me, early on, whenever you were drawn to Christ, uh, you were probably drawn to Christ in a, in a way that was attractive to you, in a way that was attractive to you. You saw something in God that was useful to you. Uh, so, for instance, if you um, grew up in a home that uh, didn't have um, very great fatherly or motherly love, and you heard a preacher or you heard a friend or you heard um, on YouTube or whatever that God loves you, God loves you. In the human heart, there's this void, right? God is presented to fill the void with something that he has to offer you, which is his love and eternal life. And you say, that's attractive. I want that. I want love. I feel like I'm in a, in a love um, void right now, and so I want that. I want that. Or it could be something uh, a little bit more intense. It could be like, you know what? Uh, hell is real. And something, something in your heart is like, you know what? I think hell is real, and, and um, I don't want to go there. And God, through Jesus, is offering a way out of that place Assign me up. And so you come to God and because there's something about him that's really attractive that you don't have to go to hell if you come to God through Jesus. And you say, there's, there's something that God is offering me. So I, I want that. I want that. Or it could be, uh, let's put it positively. Um, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die, right? Jesus, you, you hear someplace that uh, Jesus is offering the way of escape to be in heaven and glory where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. Um, all of that is gone, and you say, that, that's attractive to me. I, I, I want that. G- give me that. I want that thing. Okay? And so you say, what, what's your point? What's your point? Oftentimes, we all come to God not because we want God, but because we want the things that God offers. Right? Did you catch that? Oftentimes we come to God, especially in the beginning, not because we just say, I want God. I want to know him. I want to enjoy him. I want to delight in him. I want the things that God offers, that God offers. He's not beautiful to you. He's just useful. He's pragmatic. And so you, you say, I want those things. And so let me, let me present a, kind of a scenario to kind of illustrate uh, what, um, what I mean by this and how it pertains to the glory of God that we need to behold. Imagine you are a happily engaged couple, 21 years old, let's say, and it's known in your engagement period that uh, one of the spouse or one of the future spouse, whenever they uh, turn 22, and let's say that's in about a month, they're going to receive an inheritance, a, a seven-figure inheritance, a seven-figure, okay, inheritance. And you're just like, oh, man, that's for 22 years old. It's built into a trust somewhere, and you knew it. You knew it the entire relationship. No big deal. Seven figures. Uh, it, it's kind of part of the whole deal. But imagine uh, a month before you were supposed to get that, a month before your 22nd birthday, you get a call from the family lawyer, and they say, hey, Hate to tell you, Cody, um, but 
the trust was dissolved, someone messed up, it was stolen, something, something. Anyways, your 22nd birthday, we'll send you a card, but no seven figures. No seven figures. Bummer, right? And imagine, uh, put yourself in these shoes. Imagine your, your future spouse, the person that you're engaged to, guy or girl, what, you know, whatever it is, or whatever scenario you're in in this situation, um, says, you know what, the engagement's off. It's off. I'm done. I can't believe. I can't believe that dumb lawyer. I'm, I'm out of this relationship. How would you feel? How would you feel? Terrible, right? But it would also be revealing. What was revealed in that? Did your future spouse want you for you? Or did he or she want you for your money? Right? For your money. And you would re- recognize that in this situation, I, they didn't love me. They were just using me to get to the thing that they really loved. They were just using me to get to the thing that ha- had their ultimate affection, that, they, that really had captured and gripped their heart. They just wanted the stuff. They just wanted the stuff. And listen, listen, you and I, I'm going to say this bold, boldly, you and I, we approach God this way all the time. We approach God this way. Why do you think it's so pervasive whenever we feel, whenever things go wrong in our world, we look up at heaven and we say, God, what are you doing? Why this? Why, why this? Why are things going this way? Why? Because we're treating God transactionally. We're treating God transactionally, and we're looking to God and say, uh, God, didn't I do all the things? I showed up to the church. I showed up to the new church, you know, uh, to, to try to start that whole deal off. I, I, I gave money. I, I, I sang the songs. I did, I, I did everything that you seem, seemingly wanted me to do. Why is life turning out this way? And see what your heart reveals whenever you feel that way and whenever I feel that way is we're not treating God as something that we want because he's beautiful and lovely. We're treating God as something that is transactional, which is revealing in our heart. Listen, it's revealing in our heart that our true love is not really God, just the stuff that God can provide. Just the stuff that God can provide. It reveals to, it reveals to our heart what we're placing ultimate glory in, which is not to treasure and love God himself. You see, whenever you treasure and love God himself, you see him as beautiful. You see him as beautiful. And a lot of us in this room, at one point or another, we just married God for his money. (laughs) We just entered that relationship because we saw something in him. Uh, Last week, last weekend, we went to uh, Mount Scott uh, as us as a family. And uh, I love to go to the mountains. Absolutely love to go to the mountains. And, and I'm not a skier. I've never skied in my entire life. I love to go to the mountains and just gaze. I can, I can stay and look at things for just ever. What's going on there? Am I using the mountains? No. No. Why do we go to beaches? Why, do we, why is one of uh, the world's pastimes sitting on a beach and looking out at the ocean all day long? Why? Why do we do that? There's something, there's something in that. 
we have the census divinitatis, the sense of the divine, whenever we are beholding the beauty of God's creation. And we're just saying, this is beautiful. This gives me this sense of meaning and worth. This helps me understand and realize and maybe ask for the first time some of the existential questions of life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? And whenever we see God's general revelation, general revelation through the beauty of creation, as Romans chapter 1 tells us, we're without excuse. We're without excuse to say that the sense that we feel whenever we see the beauty of a majestic mountain or the vastness of uh, an un- never-ending ocean seemingly, What's it's supposed to do in our heart is we're supposed to say, we were, create, we were created for the creator of these things. We were created to behold and see and chase after the glory of who made this stuff. And we're supposed to see, we're supposed to see that God is beautiful. In our sense as Christians of what we need and what God is drawing us into and what Moses is revealing in this passage is that we need to look to God and just see him as beautiful, as a means to the end. And that's whenever you really know that you're a child of God. Whenever you're moved and cut to the quick of just one word, of one word that, that points you to the salvation that he has done on your behalf, on just one word, there's just the name of Jesus. It, it melts your heart away to where you, you, your, your only response is worship. He's worthy of all my love. And this is whenever you know that you're created for what? The presence and glory of God. The presence and glory of God. And Moses revealed this. He says, I, I don't want your health. I don't, you keep it, God. I don't want this country. You keep it. I just want you. I just want you. Have you ever felt that? Redeemer. Have you ever sensed that in your own heart? And if you have, listen, if you never have, then you're probably not a Christian. But if you have, listen what God does. He produces in your heart this hunger and desire for more and more of that for the rest of your life. Forever and ever and ever. That doesn't just stop this side of eternity, but will continue on forever and ever. That you sense, you know what, all I want to see All I want to experience, all I desire is the presence of God, the sense of the glory of God. I see God as beautiful. I see him as beautiful. How does God respond to this, remember? You want to see my glory? You can't do it. Impossible. But he says something interesting. He says, I'll let all my goodness pass before you. He didn't say glory. Why didn't he say glory? I'll let um, some of my Glory. So he does a little ritual, right? In Exodus 34, we're going to actually talk about this on Palm Sunday um, in greater length. So I'm just going to give a little prelude, prelude to how, how this operates. And God, whenever he's looking, um, whenever Moses asked to see God's glory, he said, I'll do this. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll let all my glory pass, all my goodness pass before you. And I'll reveal, it, reveal myself at the very end, and you'll just see the back of me. Really? <laughs> Why? Why? He says, because you can't handle it. You can't handle this. We're too different. I'm too holy. We're too different. You're too sinful. You see, if I, we talked about this early on in the book of Exodus, that God is really the God of fire, right? 
it, this, this, powerful, this powerful sense of, uh, of uh, the divine. So us being in the presence of God, and what God is revealing to Moses is like a, um, it's like a water bottle being placed into a raging fire. Let's say the water bottle has a couple of residue um, water droplets in it. And you throw that into a raging fire, what happens to that water? Gone instantly. Why? Because H2O, can, a little bit of H2O cannot stand in the presence of a raging fire. Reverse it the other way. Ton, deluge of water, a little, bit of, little, little bitty fire. You throw that on the fire and it goes out. God is saying, I am diametrically different than you. And we are opposed to one another. And I'm like fire, you're like water. I'm like a huge amount of water, and you're like a little bitty spark or flame. If we get in the presence of each other, I'm going to be okay, and you're going to die. That's what he says. But I'll give you this, I'll give you this grace. I'll let you see the back of him. And in seeing the back of him, he declares his name. And he says, I will show mercy to whom I show mercy, and I will show, show steadfast love to a thousand generations. But I will, listen, by no means clear the guilty. And that's the end of it. If the, if the Bible ended right there, we'd all be like, well, that's too much tension. We're all sinners. How in the world are you going to by no means clear the guilty, and then at the same time, at the same time, show steadfast love, mercy, and grace, and allow us to dwell with you. How is that going to happen? God, you don't make any sense. But remember, this is just the back of it. This is just the back of it. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, you know what it says, verse 14? And the word being Jesus became flesh, and it tabernacled among us. Tabernacled among us. You know what that means? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory face to face. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What Moses saw back in the Old Testament was this tension between goodness, that I will by no means clear the guilty because I am a just God, and you can see my goodness by me allowing you to be in my presence and keeping my promises. You see, the goodness of God that was revealed to God or to Moses right here on this mountain was his name in the tension of how he was going to ultimately reveal his glory. And John tells us he ultimately revealed his glory through his son. Through his son. Jesus in our place. And what happened to Jesus on the cross? You know what happened to him? He was separated. He was separated from the presence, the face-to-face -face communion that he and the Trinity had had for all of eternity. Why? Why was he separated? So that you and I can dwell with God face-to-face. -face. That you and I can be connected to God through face-to-face -face interaction, abiding in Christ. This this is the glory that we have to behold. This is the glory that we were actually created for. This is the glory that you need to base your identity on. This is it. It's Jesus in your place. We're a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. How do we make disciples? We make disciples by proclaiming Jesus in our place. For all 
who have ears. Let them hear and come to the table and commune with this God. Face to face. Moses couldn't. But you and I can through Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see the glory that you were created for? This is the glory. Seeing Jesus. Moses only got the back of it. We get the full picture. We get the full picture. The glory that you and I, the identity that you and I are ultimately made that Moses knew here was experience the presence of God. And the only way that you and I can experience the presence of God is recognizing that what he did on the cross, where he died, where he died, was he was relieving the tension of his goodness. That this showed us, this showed us that he will by no means clear the guilty. All the wrath of those who will be with God forever and ever and ever fell on Christ so that you and I can just experience the face-to-face presence. Do you weep at his glory? Do you delight in it? Do you see him as beautiful or just useful? Are you, are, are you treasuring God? Are you trying to um, get curry favor with God? Or is he the end? Is he a means to the end or is he just the end? Redeemer, my hope for you, my hope for me, my hope for my wife and my family and this church family is that we behold him, that we see him beautiful until it changes everything about us. Let's ask God for that right now. Will you pray with me?